that put me in a good mood. I want to just say thank you to, to Sue for stimulating prayer in our body. Um, I was at some, you know, clinical educational thing where it was about networking with churches, the clinical world and the church world. And the man there cited a study that said, um, they, this particular study, they compared theophostic prayer and s singular prayer, group prayer, um, uh, contemplative prayer, different modalities of prayer, and then tried to measure the results. And, and the conclusion of the study was, was that no one type of prayer is any better than any other. What's important is that we pray. And that really fits with that quote that you said at the end there. So, um, well, some of you know that Laura and I made an escape a couple weeks ago up to my parents' cabin on the Minnesota-Canada border. And um, my parents were able to join us, which was a great joy, and then they went back to Minneapolis. And um, Laura was cleaning out the kitchen, and she came upon some chocolate bars and marshmallows that we had used to make s'mores. Uh, earlier in the year with some of the grandkids. It's just the two of us up there. And she said, do you think uh, it'd be all right to put these out on the screened-in porch? Um, or do you think the, the bears might come? And uh, I had a flashback to uh, growing up and going on canoe trips and how we would suspend the food packs between two trees high, as high as we could get them so that the bears couldn't leap from the tree or leap from the ground and get these food packs. But sometimes we were lazy and we just left the packs on the ground and we took, um, I remember my mom taking pots and pans into her tent. You never take food in your tent because the bears will come in the tent and get the food and get you. So, uh, but my mom would take plates and and uh, we'd wake up in the middle of the night to her screaming and banging plates together. And, and we'd all run out of the tents and chase these bears away. Um, I imagine, Diane, you had similar experiences in uh, Outward Bound. And, um, so I said to Laura, sure, go ahead and put them out there, um, thinking that certainly the bears have matured since <laughs> since I grew up. And um, I don't know if it was later that night or the next night, uh, we heard a big bang. And uh, like something was going on. It was a big animal. And Laura, I jumped up and, and Laura said, it's a bear and he's out on the porch. And we couldn't see it. But uh, I, I went into, I went into, fight mode and I ran out on the screened in porch and sure enough there was this bear and uh, so like my mother I, I roared up on my toes I got as big as I could and I yelled with all my might and he got up on his <laughs> legs like this and then the game was on we came together and he took a big swipe I ducked I came up under his back, 
had his headlock and I was just punching him in the face. This is really true, Jim. <laughs> no, actually, the, the true story is um, there was a bear uh, there, but when I yelled, he, he took off through the woods and he just crashed around like he was pouting and mad that he didn't get that chocolate and those marshmallows, and I felt victorious. What I didn't know was that Laura had followed me out with a huge fireplace poker. <laughs> and I don't know if the bear was scared of me or scared of Laura with that fireplace poker. When we went down to Minneapolis, I was telling my folks this story, and we were in their car going to a restaurant, and I said, Dad, you wouldn't have believed me. I said, I, I ran out there with no weapon, no fear, and he interjected, no brain. <laughs> Pretty good for a 91-year-old man. But I don't care what any of you say, I felt victorious. And uh, some days later, I was thinking about Dr. Chuck Farah. Many of you know him, former uh, professor of theology at ORU. And, former pastor at this church, and he said he was always exhorting us to have a Christus Victor mentality. And um, we ought always to have this can-do spirit, this courageous spirit. And as we were worshiping and winding up worship this morning, I sensed that spirit in the room today, a desire to fight and wage war for our faith the phrase uh, Christus Victor means Christ is Victor. And I spoke on this some years ago, comparing a Christus Victor mentality to a poverty mentality and to a fortress mentality. But I'd like to approach it a little differently today, talk about the origin of the term Christus Victor, talk about its history, um, its ties to the doctrine of the atonement, and then look at several scriptures that really encourage us to have this kind of a mentality. When we begin to explore this term Christus Victor, it quickly becomes apparent that it's not that old a term. It, it, um, it's, it's definitely a term that arose in the 1900s and that it's intertwined with this doctrine of the atonement. For those of you who need a little refresher on what is that doctrine, the atonement is all about how God was in Christ reconciling man to himself. And a question arises out of that is, what are we saved from primarily? Are we primarily saved from the devil, uh, the sin, law, death, all of the above? Um, so let's, let's look at this a little bit. I'm going to stick with uh, these slides now for, for a time. So as I researched this term, I discovered that there are basically two major views of the atonement. The first might be called the Christus Victor or ransom view. Now let's take a look at this slowly together. 
Christus Victor is taken from the title of a book by Gustav Allen, means Christ is Victor, and it contends that the atonement is mostly about the divine conflict and victory of God through Christ over the hostile powers that hold humanity in sin and subjugation. Here's a quote from Allen where he says, the work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage, sin, death, and the devil. Allen maintains that the Christus Victor or ransom theory was predominant for the first thousand years of church history and was supported by all the Greek church fathers and most of the Latin fathers of the patristic period, including Ambrose, Augustine, Leo the Great, and Gregory the Great. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 is an example of the type of verse that supports the Christus Victor view of the atonement. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Also Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So that's the Christus Victor view. Again, the, the focus is on sin, death, and the devil, overcoming these world powers, these larger forces that hold us captivity or held us captivity. The second view of the atonement is called the satisfaction or substitution view. Allen maintains a major shift occurred when Anselm of Canterbury wrote Curdius Homo, I think that means the God-man, in 1097. Mark Galley in Christianity Today writes, Biblical substitutionary atonement in all its nuances, or the Bible frames it in different ways as sacrifice, propitiation, and payment, remains the dominant metaphor for atonement in Scripture. When he wanted to demonstrate his love for us, God substituted himself for us on the cross. It's an especially fitting move given who God is, both just and merciful. Romans 3, 24 through 26 is a good example of this view of the atonement. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you can see the ransom theory is about God rescuing us, uh, or the ransom view is about God rescuing us from the devil and from sin and the law and the curse. And the substitutional view is that God provided Christ to save us from our sin, to deliver us from our sin. So let me tell you about the, the current debate that's going on about these views of the atonement. The debate today among Christian theologians and thinkers is, 
which of these two views is primary and which is secondary? Or is there a primary and secondary? Galley frames it well, writing, many interesting comparisons can be made between the two. Both actually include dimensions of personal guilt and victimhood, but as I listen to the discussion today, it seems the Christus Victor view highlights our state as victims. Substitutionary atonement focuses on our guilt. In Christus Victor, on hostile powers out there. In substitution, we are forgiven, and liberation is from ourselves and our addiction to our sins. Our sin. Naturally, both models speak to the truths of the human condition, but I'm concerned that the rising popularity of Christus Victor when it comes at the expense of substitution. In my view, more than ever in our day, we need a Christus Vicarious. Isn't that good thinking? Well, certainly, um, a Christus Victor mentality can hurt us, I think if it's not rightly understood and applied. For example, if we minimize our sin and guilt before the Lord. Um, it's interesting to me that Christus Victor, the Christus Victor view of the atonement is gaining popularity now uh, through speakers like Rob Bell, through liberation theology, uh, and even in a superficial evangelicalism where um, sin is just not, you know, in our culture, people are okay, people are good. And so if you're superficial in your theology, that's attractive and it's more about we're victims and we're being saved by Christ from our victimhood. So we don't want to minimize our sin and guilt before the Lord by taking on a Christus Victor mindset. Amen? Um, also, people get arrogant with this view. Um, in other words, they sometimes steal his glory. We walk in our own sense of victory rather than continually giving glory to God for his victory. And um, we see this sometimes in the extreme hyperfaith movements and other theologies. But I think of that scripture, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, uh, B, what do you have that you did not receive? And 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. Let me just turn there quickly. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I know you agree with me about that. And then isn't it interesting that the same man I quoted, Dr. Farah, who says we should maintain this Christus Victor mentality, wrote a book about presumption versus faith. That it's, we need to guard from getting into uh, thinking we're all that and we can command the heavens and they will do exactly what we think they should. So 
where can a Christus Victor mentality help us, however? I think Christ's victory can give us great confidence. It can give us great courage. And it can give us great security in him. It's my contention this morning that the scriptures call us to such a mentality that there are great gains to be made by having this mentality. Now, many of the scriptures we look at are going to be descriptive rather than proscriptive or prescriptive. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, Paul might be describing his experience that, that uh, he overwhelmingly conquered through Jesus who loved him. So Paul might just be describing his uh, experience of God, his experience of victory in God, rather than saying, all of you should have this. And yet, Paul also said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So I'm going to treat these verses uh, up front with you and let you know that I'm going to treat them as applicable to us. So this is kind of the key slide for me, and that is, what do I mean by a Christus Victor mentality? I'm really not talking about the doctrine of the atonement here as much as I'm saying what kind of posture, what kind of spirit, what kind of mindset should we have as we walk through life as believers? So I tried to write up as best I could what I think this means. It's a courageous and confident mindset because of the victory of Christ. We know that Christ was victorious, Christ is victorious, and Christ will be victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And because we're rooted and grounded and hidden in him, we too walk in his victory. Victory doesn't mean we always get our way, uh, that we don't suffer, that we're free from all disease or loved ones don't die, but it means that his glory is primary to us. And that because his glory is primary to himself and to us, he will triumph in Christ in our life and circumstances. I guess I went off script there. Because his glory is primary, we don't just resign ourselves to adverse circumstances, but neither do we fear them. Rather, we remember that the scriptures say we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. And he always leads us in his triumph in Christ. We have joy, we have confidence in all weathers because we know he will be glorified in our lives. This is what keeps us happy and courageous. We are full of faith because we know the one in whom we have believed. A good example of this to me is uh, James. James works out at our house on a kind of a regular basis these days. And one day he was out working in the rain. It wasn't just a little rain. It was a drenching rain. as the kind of rain that drives you into the house. But James, he's just out there working. And uh, later, I can't remember how I heard this, but he, and he was hauling some, some, some brush that day. And so he was getting a physical workout, and I guess that he picked up the phone and he called Amy, and 
He said, Amy, this is great. I'm getting a shower, I'm getting a good workout, and I'm getting paid all at the same time. That's a Christus Victor mentality. Okay, let's just look at some scriptures now that will help us with this mentality. The first uh, four scriptures talk about confidence, in my view, or why we can have confidence because of Christ. The first one is one I've already referenced before. Thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. This phrase, who always leads us in his triumph, is a phrase that I carry around in my head. It's just there. And it is so encouraging, and I love it so much. He is leading me. He is leading you in the midst of your circumstances, and Christ will triumph. Christ's glory will triumph in your life and in your circumstances. And then let it be, Lord, that we are the aroma of Christ. Amen? I think about being a witness even when I'm not being a witness. Even when I'm not conscious of any influence or any words coming out of my mouth, Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ, that people can sense and see Jesus Christ in us. Have you ever had that experience where you're out in public and you just, you see someone and you just know this is a believer? And so you ask them and they say, yeah, and you rejoice. There's just that knowing and that sense, the aroma of Christ. Another verse that's quoted often is, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I remember when my kids were at Jenks High School, and we used to get these um, yearbooks, and I remember paging through them, and how many of the kids, particularly the athletes, quoted this verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And um, I just had a feeling that maybe they were focused on being a great athlete, being a great student, conquering every test, um, excelling, and yet the verse, this verse is in a context that really has a different message than that. The message in this verse is that he is our contentment, that we can abound and we can be abased. I know how to abound and I know how to be abased, Paul says. Humble means and, and, and prosperity. Let's read it together. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things 
through him who strengthens me. My stereotypic image of a jank student is a kid who gets in, his, gets in a Hummer to drive to school, uh, you know, that his parents have given him when he turns 16. Now, this is an exaggeration to some extent. To some extent. But, uh, you know, when he cites that verse in his yearbook, is that what he's thinking about? I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. Um, I, I just think that this verse is about the secret in our circumstances is Christ, is staying focused on Christ. Whether we have a sense we're winning, we're losing, we're shaping those circumstances or out of control, bringing glory to Christ is the triumph that we're looking for. Amen? So guidance and circumstances. And then I hope with me you love this verse, John 16, 33. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Someone has said that the disposition of a Christian should be joy. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Sometimes when you watch the news, don't you just want to just want to say to the TV, stop lying to me. <laughs> you know, do I need this again? Do, you know, uh, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, you're getting lied to. Uh, and it just, you get so tired of the world system and uh, the way the world thinks and operates. Not that I'm completely free of it, but you know what I mean. We have enough of the mind of Christ that we see through so many of the lies. So tired of the world. And this is what Jesus said he overcame. In this verse, he said, uh, be of good cheer. I have overcome what? The world. The world. This is a Christus Victor verse. This is a great verse. We can have confidence as we are in the world that he is the victor. And then 1 John 4, 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them um, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We hear this verse quoted, we rejoice over it, we believe it. I also want to point out the context of this verse, though. What does it, what does it mean when it says, um, and have overcome them. Who is the them? Well, if you turn to 1 John chapter 4, the first few verses, you see that John is talking about false teachers and false doctrine, that we have also, because of Christ in us, and that truth teaching us, that anointing teaching us, and as well as each other, um, that we have been able to overcome false teaching and false doctrine. Isn't that interesting? That, in the, that verse is in that context. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. So we, we can have confidence in the areas of guidance, our circumstances, the world, and false doctrine. Now, the next three verses I want to show you are about courage. Man, we need courage in our day. Boy, we need courage. 
Joshua 1.7, only be strong and very courageous, God said to Joshua, and be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. And then what does verse 8 say, the next verse? Again, we want to look at the context. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? So here, courage is tied to the word of God, and that makes sense, doesn't it? We need to know who we are in Christ. 2 Timothy 1.7 is another. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. Some versions say self-control. Others say a sound mind. Judah, Sills, and I are working on this verse, aren't we, Judah? I won't make you say it right now. But he probably could. I call uh, over a hundred times in the Bible, God tells us, to fear not. And, um, oh, I'm sorry, that was, I wanted to quote where jo for Joshua, the Joshua verse. Let me go back just a second. Listen to this quote from Martin Luther. Courage is the inner resolution to go forward in spite of obstacles and frightening situations. Cowardice is a submissive surrender to circumstance. Courage faces fear and thereby masters it. Cowardice represses fear and is thereby mastered by it. We must constantly build dikes of courage to hold back the flood of fear. Isn't that good? So now moving back to 2 Timothy 1.7, I've been reading a book talking about discipline. It's actually called The Seven Levels of Intimacy. It sounds kind of like a foo-foo book. But this guy is actually very hard-hitting. Listen to a little bit of what he says about discipline. Discipline is the price life demands for happiness. I'm not speaking about pleasure. I'm talking about lasting happiness in a changing world. You cannot be happy for any sustained period of time without discipline. Discipline is the road that leads to fullness of life because discipline is the key to freedom. One of the great challenges of the art of living is to learn to discipline ourselves, but at this moment in history, Gratification seems to be the master of most people's hearts, minds, bodies, and souls. We find ourselves enslaved and imprisoned by a thousand different whims, cravings, addictions, and attachments. We have subscribed to the adolescent notion that freedom is the ability to do whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, without interference from any authority. Could the insanity of our modern philosophy be any more apparent? Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. Freedom is the strength of character to do what is good, true, noble, and right. This is why so few relationships thrive in our time. Think of, 
Concentrate on this paragraph now. Discipline leads to freedom, and freedom leads to love. He says, this is why so few very relationships thrive in our time. The very nature of love requires self-discipline. Without self-mastery, self-control, self-dominion, we are incapable of love. We want to love, but without self-discipline, we are simply unable to do so. We are not free. We do not possess ourselves enough to give ourselves, give of ourselves. As a result, we preoccupy ourselves with all the externals of relationships and call those love. Does that hit you as hard as it hits me? One couple more sentences. The problem is we don't want discipline. We want someone to tell us that we can be happy without it, but we can't. In fact, if you want to measure the level of happiness in your life, measure the level of discipline in your life. The two are directly related. He says, without discipline, it's impossible to love. A third verse is Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Have you ever acquiesced before someone too quickly and, and felt ashamed of yourself? Or perhaps you've uh, been caught in a sin and it's disqualified you or you have felt disqualified by that sin from fully engaging someone. It's not a good feeling. But a lion in Proverbs 30.30 says he doesn't retreat before any. And that's what makes him so powerful and such a strong image in our creation. Oh, we have a need for courage. So courage is connected here to the word, to discipline, and to righteousness. Now let's look at a few more scriptures that can give us confidence about Christ being victorious because of our safety and security in him. When we do need to retreat and get some, some rebuilding, God is our refuge. Amen? Um, I don't know if you remember, but several years ago I did a message called God is Our Refuge, and I listed from the book of Psalms David's ways of saying that God is our refuge. He said, the Lord is my dwelling place. The Lord is my shelter. He is my secret place. The Lord is my hiding place. The Lord is my stronghold. He is my rock. He's my light. And he is my high fortress. He's my shade. He's my keeper. meaning he is attending sharply to me. The Lord is my strength, he is my shadow, my tabernacle, and my tower. How secure we are in the Lord, our refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Romans eight thirty nine, and then jumping back to verse 37, 
nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. What a great, great section of scripture. Romans 8, 28 through 30. For we know that God calls all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I was noticing in this verse that it doesn't say for our good. You know, we slip our in there. All things work together for our good. Um, So I have to do some more pondering on that because it does follow the good with to those who love God. But it, it, it seems to imply to me that his purposes may be bigger than just our good or our perceived good in that moment because we're interested in his triumph, amen? His triumph more than our circumstances being what we want them to be. John 14, 1 and 2. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's take a look at that. That verse is so comforting. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Eternity is waiting for us. In fact, according to Colossians 3.3, we're already hidden in Christ in God. Our lives are already hidden with him, secure in him. So no matter what we go through on this earth, our lives are secure in Christ. What a victory he has won for us. And then one last verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We can't go without this one. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Several verses later, I don't have this verse on on the PowerPoint, but it says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. What a Christus Victor spirit uh, are in these passages. And I want to close with this illustration. Billy Graham tells a story about his grandmother When she died, the room seemed to be filled with a heavenly light, he said. She sat up in bed and almost laughed, saying, I see Jesus. He has his arms outstretched toward me. And I see Ben, who was her husband, who had died some years earlier. And I see angels. With that glad exclaim, she took her last breath and passed into eternity. In that moment, he will have his angels gather you in their arms and carry you gloriously 
wonderfully into heaven, Billy Graham. So seeing that we have his great and precious promises, knowing that this victory is already won and he is victor, certain that our lives are hidden in him, knowing in whom we have believed, may we press on to know the Lord and walk through life with that Christus victor mentality, confident, courageous, filled with joy. Christ is victor. Christ is victor. And he will be victorious in our lives and in our circumstances. Father, we give you the glory and all the praise for your victory through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we embrace both views of the atonement because they are both true. Father, give us a courageous spirit in these days, but keep us humble. Keep us humble, Lord, and grounded, but we do pray for a courageous, expectant faith to arise in our hearts, Lord. We want to be humble, we want to be true to your word, and we want to be courageous and bold. Father, when adverse circumstances come, we pray we wouldn't fear. But Father, you'd give us a courageous spirit. And as Susie witnessed earlier, a spirit that wants to pray and intercede and plumb the depths of Christ and understand the right perspective in that situation. We pray, Father, that we wouldn't be afraid to uh, believe that circumstances can be changed. But we also pray that we would know uh, when there's a greater purpose. And in every case, Lord, we pray that we would have that spirit that says Christ will always triumph in my life and he will be glorified. We ask for that spirit, Lord, and we praise you for one another. Thank you for planting us in this great church. We love you and we honor you. Help us to inspire one another to a more holy faith. Wherever we're off, Lord, we, we, we look forward to your adjustment and correction. We love you and praise you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.